Bongo was uh, preaching last week, and he uh, encouraged uh, everyone uh, that was here to uh, be bold about their faith, to look for opportunities to uh, share the love of Christ and the good news of the gospel uh, with people. And then he, as I had said earlier, he provided a, a couple tables full of different tools for people to uh, use to be able to uh, communicate the gospel uh, to, to folks. And uh, as, it, as it was, there was uh, at least one person in our church family, probably many others I would imagine, but there was at least one person in our church family who uh, took Mike up on that in, in a very real way. Her name is Cindy Santiago. Uh, she's going to be here at the n- next service to uh, provide her testimony uh, in person, but we, uh, we recorded it uh, for you. And so we want to uh, let Cindy tell you a little bit about how God l- used her last uh, Sunday evening to uh, apply uh, the message that Mike had uh, shared. So uh, we'll let Cindy take it away. Hi, my name is Cindy Santiago, and I've been attending Living Water for about four years, but really started to be consistent in my attendance about a year ago. I'm involved in the Imago Day ministry. I just started doing that, which I really, really enjoy. I think it's a great ministry that a church has to be able to reach um, those those kids, and it's kind of a passion of mine, so I'm really excited about that. And next month, I'll be starting with the greeting and fellowship team um, under Franklin, so I'm excited for that too. Last Sunday, I sat through um, Pastor Mike Bongo's service and was really inspired by just trying to find what I could do to reach out to other people. I even had a conversation with somebody after the service about the Center for Champions and how I'd love to be a mentor, but I have two little ones that I need to mentor of my own and kind of left just saying to myself, God, just use me wherever you see fit. And kind of left it at that. I actually took a couple of the tracks off the back and went about my day. Wasn't intending on coming back for the movie that night, but felt led to. Um, I was intrigued by what the movie might be about. After the movie, I had to stop at Target to grab a couple things for my daughter's kindergarten class. And I pulled into the parking lot and a lady pulled up right next to me. And I just happened to look her direction and she just threw her hands in her face and was just sobbing uncontrollably. And immediately I felt very compelled just to check on her to make sure she was okay. I did kind of pause for a second because immediately I felt the Holy Spirit like, no, you're not just checking on this lady. You're going to share me with her. And honestly, I was scared um, because I, I don't have it all figured out. And right away I started digging through my purse. Where are the tracks? Where are the tracks? So had I not been in church that morning and had Mike Bongo not put all those tools on the back table, I would have had nothing to give this lady except my words and write down living water for her. But because I had these tracks, I was able to. So I got grabbed on track. I walked over to her car the whole time thinking, she's going to think I'm crazy. She's going to think I'm trying to jump in her car. So I just said a quick prayer and was like, okay, just help me not look like a weirdo. <laughs> so I gently tapped on her window scared her to death. (laughs) Um, But she rolled down the passenger side window and I just asked her if she was okay. And I told her that I could relate um, just by looking at her through her window. I had been in those moments when I threw my hands in my my face in my hands and just cried. And I just felt very compelled um, to make sure she was okay. So she went on to tell me that she was fine. She was just in a really bad place and she was going through a divorce. 
And immediately I told her, well, this isn't by chance because I'm facing the same trials that you are. And we're both in the same storm. So we continued to talk and I was able to just share with her how drawing myself closer to Jesus through all of this has carried me and sustained me. And once my teeth started chattering and the rain started to fall, I put my hoodie up and then she invited me to sit in her car with her. And she recognized that I wasn't going to kill her and I felt like she wasn't going to kill me. So there we were sitting in the car. So we were able to joke and God was able to use my sense of humor to kind of break the ice. And I was able to just tell her what it means for Jesus to be sovereign. Um, I never really understood that term until I dove into it here. And so I could explain to her that he's got you because that's what he's shown me. And she then told me, well, I believe in God, but I'm Jewish. So I said, well, that's great. So is Jesus. It's perfect. And she laughed and um, we were able to talk and she was able to calm down. And I was just grateful that I was able to use that moment um, to bring her from tears to laughter that only I would have been able to do if, with having Jesus in my heart and having the relationship that I have with him that's continuing to grow. I'm also so grateful that I was able to give her this tract. I told her about Living Water and how I walked into here, and I w- they loved me right where I was. Um, and that's really what this church does. You have to be careful when you say, God used me, because boom, he threw me right in it, in that moment. And it was just so real. I had the ability to then pray with this lady um, and just let her know that I don't have it all figured out either. But thankfully, God does. And um, that's, that's where I put my faith. So I pray for her. I pray that that seed is watered. And I, I was just so encouraged and so grateful that I felt confident giving her the information about living water because I know without a shadow of a doubt that she can step foot in these doors. She can make a phone call here and her needs will be met at whatever level that is. And that's so reassuring to have that in a church. And when I handed it to her, I didn't tell her that this is my church. I told her this is my family. And they will meet you right where you're at and love you right where you're at. So I hope that's uh, an encouragement to you. It definitely was an encouragement to to me. Uh, Cindy had stopped by our house on Tuesday and had shared that with Kathy and I. And as soon as she uh, had left, I, I immediately got on the phone. I'm like, Mike, you will not believe what just happened. And he was... He was so uh, incredibly jazzed about that. So I pray that that God would uh, do in your life the same thing that God's doing in Cindy's life, uh, using you to uh, share the good news of Jesus with others. Well, uh, here we are. I mean, my goodness, uh, it's it's crazy. Uh, What was nothing more than a a three-page Microsoft Word document entitled, a facility expansion worship list that I had written, or a wish list that I had written back in March of 2011, God has graciously uh, turned into reality. And it has been a, a result of, of your generosity. It has been a, a result of the, the tireless work of, of literally hundreds of construction workers and uh, Living Water uh, Church family members and staff members. It's been the result of, of tons of prayer, and, and most importantly, it has been the result of the infinite amount of, of God's goodness. And uh, now we have this, this larger facility, and we can continue to do the things that, that we've really been doing since uh, 2001 when we first got started, 
uh, we're able to uh, continue to, to worship the Lord and disciple others and, and demonstrate the, the love of Jesus to, to our community in, in larger ways than we have been able to do in the past. But the reality of all of this is it hasn't come without struggle, folks. Uh, for nearly eight years, our, our leadership team wrestled with uh, the timing of when to begin. And uh, during those eight years, there were countless spirited discussions of, of the pros and cons of, of moving forward. Uh, several people who would have normally served in, in key roles in, in the construction process and, and overseeing that construction process uh, went home to be with the Lord. Uh, some of them moved away. Uh, our general contractor, uh, our, our go-to guy, the, the fellow who built the first building, uh, the fellow who built the CRC, the fellow who would have built this building uh, before he could even bid the job, uh, tragically took his own life a few years ago. Uh, during those, uh, this time of trying to figure out how to get this place built, we've had staff member changes. Uh, this year we had to forego a vacation Bible school because the place was all ripped to shreds. Uh, construction occurred during the uh, wettest uh, year on record and, and the longest time. Uh, 30,000 pounds of, of roof trusses uh, collapsed right where all you guys are sitting right now. You have picked the dangerous section of the church over there. And that forced us to uh, cancel uh, several morning, or our morning services uh, earlier in 2018. Uh, what some of you probably weren't aware of is uh, one day uh, a construction worker wasn't paying attention. He uh, took a lift uh, right over here, sheared off a sprinkler head. Uh, sprinklers put out a lot of water very quickly, and uh, we flooded a good part of the building that day. And then we were forced to deal with more dirt than uh, occurs in an Oklahoma dust storm. I mean, it's been crazy. And then you add to it just the personal struggles that, that members of our staff were going through and members that, uh, of our church family were going through over the course of the last year. We uh, folks who had kids that were losing their minds, uh, strained marriages, theological disagreements, uh, serious illnesses, uh, deaths of beloved family members, one of which just happened yesterday morning when uh, God surprisingly called uh, Jim Brown home to himself. Uh, military deployments, job losses, and countless other challenges that are just simply too much to mention. And all told, this has been a very rewarding yet very challenging process, but perhaps the most difficult thing that, that I know that I have experienced uh, over the, the last several months has been uh, the fundamental misunderstanding of some who thought and perhaps still think that the underlying goal of, of all of this was simply to become a bigger church. That everything that we've done is just about more people and more money and more prestige. However, that thinking couldn't be further from the truth. And uh, today I want to make sure that, that we are all crystal clear as to my heart and the heart of our staff and the heart of our leadership team as it relates to uh, what we desire for the life of our church family that we call Living Water. Now, for the, the past six months uh, in particular, and 
probably, I don't know, the last four years in general, God has been teaching me much about who I am. And uh, he has been teaching me even much more about who he is. And it has been quite a journey. Uh, it's not really a journey that I would have uh, signed up for. It's a journey that has come with uh, a great deal of, of heartache. Uh, but it is a journey for which I am extremely grateful that God has put me on. And uh, over time, uh, on this journey, God has taken me to a, an unexpected place. Well, actually, uh, not really a place, it's actually a book. And it's not just any particular book, it's a, a particular book of, of the Bible. It's uh, the book of Hosea. Uh, the first book in a, a section of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. And I got to tell you, uh, man, I'm not like really a Minor Prophets kind of Old Testament kind of person. Uh, I have trouble pronouncing the names of some of the uh, prophets, uh, let alone fully understanding what God is trying to, to say through them. You know, I'm more of a, a New Testament, Gospels, Pauline, uh, Epistle Kind of, kind of guy. Uh, and as such, I find myself being drawn to, to books like Luke, where we had, had spent almost two years going through, or, or uh, the Pauline epistles like Ephesians or Philippians, rather than Obadiah and, and Zephaniah. So when I started spending time in, in Hosea, I was really skeptical about uh, what God would be able to, to teach me through it and what I would discover. But but that skepticism was quickly uh, replaced by joy when I discovered what God was doing in my life. You see, God brought me to Hosea to bring revival to my life. And the book of Hosea is, it's all about revival, folks. It's all about God taking a wayward sinful group of people, the people of Israel, and calling them back to himself. And, and in Hosea, God repeatedly demonstrates his, his steadfast love uh, for Israel despite their persistent disobedience. And he does this by lovingly warning them of his determination to discipline them until they repent of their sin and turn back to him. And all the while, he consistently reminds them of the promise to restore them to right relationship with him. And brothers and sisters, I believe that God's message to the Israelites through the prophet Hosea in the 8th century B.C. is God's message to the people of living water in the 21st century A.D. You see, God is calling us to revival. Collectively as a church family, but I believe also individually as men and women who claim the name of Jesus. You see, God isn't nearly as interested about the number of people that fill these seats as he is in the condition of the hearts that are in these seats. And when I use the term revival, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, seven evenings of worship services I'm not talking about, you know, paying thousands and thousands of dollars to bring some outside pastor in who's a, a revivalist to get us all fired up. What I'm talking about is corporate and personal acknowledgement of sin. I'm talking about 
authentic repentance from that sin. And I'm talking about a, a renewed uh, intensity to, to love God and, and to love others. And it's the kind of revival that, that restores broken relationships and, and breaks the bonds of addiction and, and, and returns the, the kids to their parents and parents to their kids and, and transforms neighborhoods and, 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 and communities and, and cities and nations and ultimately causes us to trust more fully in God as we seek to glorify him in every facet of our lives. You see, revival literally means to, to bring back to life. And that's what happens when people are restored to right relationship with God. It's the supernatural work of God. It is not something that we can manufacture or conjure up. It's something that God initiates because he loves you and because he loves me. And I want to show that to you this morning. If you, if you have a Bible with you, uh, open it up to the book of Hosea. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room and on the back tables there. And uh, if you are able to stand, if you would do so, please, in, in honor of God's word. Hosea chapter 14. Uh, we'd normally bring the lights up, but we don't have complete control of them right now. And we're just kind of happy they're on. So... Uh, if you've got to strain your eyes a little bit, hopefully next week we'll have this uh, particular issue solved. Uh, Hosea chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, O Lord, to the work of our hands, in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel, he shall blossom like the lily, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon." His shoots shall spread out, his beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. And he shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain, they shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, in order to fully understand uh, what we've just read here uh, uh, a little bit of Old Testament history lesson is uh, in order. Uh, in roughly 1300 B.C., that would be about 3,300 years ago, uh, the nation of Israel conquered the Promised Land. And for the next 400 years, Israel grew first under the leadership of Joshua and then under the leadership of a, a group of judges. And some of those judges were really good, and some of those judges were, quite frankly, horrific. And then, uh, eventually, 
they got a king. They started out with a king by the name of Saul, ended up with a, a king by the name of David, and then David eventually died, and his son Solomon took over. And during those 400 years, Israel became a powerful nation. And then something terrible happened. After the the death of King Solomon, sometime around 930 B.C., uh, the nation divided into two separate kingdoms. Uh, There was the the northern kingdom that that retained the name Israel, also known as Ephraim. And then there was the southern kingdom that that, uh, had the name of Judah. And uh, as soon as they split up, uh, the wheels came off. And in both kingdoms, uh, new kings uh, came and went. There was lots of intrigue. There were uh, assassinations. There were, were kings who died of diseases and things like that. And it was just all of this stuff that was tumultuous. Some of the kings were good. Some of them were bad. Uh, but ultimately, in both the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, they fell into this horrific state of, of spiritual and, and moral decline. And as a result, uh, they abandoned the worship of the one and only true God of the Bible, and they began to worship foreign gods. And uh, one of the prominent foreign gods of that day was Baal, and uh, he was the Canaanite weather god. He was believed to have control over agriculture and fertility and rainfall and productivity. And Baal worship was, a, was an affront to uh, the holy god of the, the universe because it involved all kinds of evil behaviors like uh, corporate drunkenness, bestiality, human sacrifice, mutilation, uh, incest, Uh, and and ritual prostitution where in a worship service people would be engaged in in all kinds of sexual activity. But worshiping other gods wasn't their only problem. You see, they hadn't only abandoned God's law, but they they had uh, abandoned God's protection. And and so what happened is they began to put their trust in, in foreign kings to protect them rather than putting their trust in God. And instead, when their nations went into time of national distress, they made agreements with all the other uh, pagan kingdoms around them, some of them who were ultimately going to conquer them down the road. And brothers and sisters, many times, you and I, we do the exact same thing. We exchange the worship of the one and only true God of the universe for lesser gods. And if we're courageous enough, it's easy to determine the identities of those lesser gods. All we have to do is ask ourselves some very simple diagnostic questions. Questions like this, where do I spend most of my time? What consumes most of my thoughts? Where do I place most of my money? Those three things, our time, our thoughts, and our money, they expose our idols. They expose the very things that we worship. And idols come in in all kinds of shapes and sizes. They can be people. They can be a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse. 
one of the most prominent idols that, that come into people's lives are their kids. We very quickly make our children our idols. They can be activities, work, sports, leisure. They can be behaviors, overeating, undereating, overdrinking, overworking, endless amounts of addiction, a quest to be in control. They can be uh, overemphasis in our lives in social media or movies or music or video games. They can be seemingly good things. Like, like volunteering or caring for others or, or rescuing animals, they can become our gods. They can even be spiritual and unhealthy overemphasis on a particular doctrine or a critical legalistic spirit. You see, if there is something, one thing that is more important to us than God, one thing where we turn to, to find comfort, one thing that, that we fall back on when, when everything else is falling apart around us, one thing that, that we pursue in order to, to give us a sense of control, that, brothers and sisters, is what we can be confident is the idol in our lives. But idol worship, it's not our only problem. We also look to other things to deliver us. Where the ancient Israelites turned to other nations for their salvation, we turn to things like money and power, and education, and politics to protect us. We say to ourselves, if only I can get enough money, or, or if only I can get enough power, if only I can get enough knowledge, if only I can get enough influence, if only this person gets elected or that person gets elected, then everything will be okay. That will save me. And tragically, this describes many of us. Because in many ways, we're not much different than the Israelites that Hosea was prophesying to. Now, at this point, you would have thought that God would simply write off the Israelites. I, I mean, how long do you have to warn somebody? You think he would have just simply said, you know what, you guys have strayed one too many times. I'm done with you. Yet instead, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet. Isaiah, Micah, Amos, and Hosea. And he calls these people time and time and time and time again into repentance. And his message was simple. Basically, the message of, of the prophets is this. You have wandered away from the God who loves you. Return to him. You have left the, the God who delivered your forefathers from 400 years of slavery. The God who provided food and drink for you as you wandered aimlessly in, in a desert for 40 years. The God who established you as a nation. The, the God who protected you from your enemies. You have wandered from the God who gave you a moral law that made you distinct from all the other pagan nations around you. You have wandered from this God who called you to be a beacon of hope to a very lost world. And God looks at them and says, you have abandoned all that I have done for you. You have turned to worship idols made of wood and metal. In our case, silicon and diodes. You seek protection from foreign nations who ultimately want to enslave you. God says, it's time to forsake all of that. Repent of your sin 
and return to worshiping me. And that, brothers and sisters, that's the bulk of the first 13 chapters of Hosea. 90% plus of Hosea recounts God pointing to the disobedience and the unfaithfulness of the people as he warns them of impending judgment. And throughout these chapters, God compares them to all kinds of things. Uh, You think calling names is bad? Watch the names that God calls these people. He calls them a promiscuous wife, an indifferent mother, an illegitimate child, an ungrateful son, and a stubborn cow. Yet scattered among this avalanche of verses that that, that are reminders of their sin and dire warnings of their coming judgment, there is just this little spattering of verses that remind them of God's love and offer hope for restoration. There's a particular verse in Hosea that has become very, very real to me. It's Hosea 10, verse 12. And it goes something like this. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap everlasting love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to return to the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. That verse has given me great hope over the last six months. There's another verse in Hosea, chapter 12, verse 6. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. You see, Hosea is telling the people, you know what? It's not too late. It's not too late to return to God. It's not too late to receive his mercy. It's not too late to embrace love and justice and righteousness. It's not too late for God to do his divine work of plowing up the the hardened ground of our lives. But nowhere is more hope found than in the last chapter, which we just read. And in this chapter, we find three simple truths about what authentic, everlasting revival looks like. Let me show you again. Look at Hosea 14.1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. And this verse teaches us that God is the one who initiates revival in our lives. He's the one who reaches out to to Israel through Hosea and, and calls them back to himself. And he Hosea has been speaking to these people for 30 years. Think about this. God uses Hosea as his mouthpiece, pointing out the people's sin over and over again, warning them about the associated consequences over and over again, providing them every opportunity to return to God. And he waits for 30 years. God allows this to go on. If anybody ever wondered if God was patient, there should be no wondering ever again. Jesus' dearest friend, Peter, speaks of God's patience when he says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why in the world is God so patient? He's patient because he loves us. He's patient because he desires for us to repent. He knows our heart. He knows that we're stubborn. He knows that our sin runs deep. And rather than destroying us immediately, he beckons us back to himself. If God wasn't patient with us, he could destroy every one of us at this moment. There's not a single one of us that, that is worthy of God's love. We break God's commandments all the time. And if God was not a, a patient, loving God, he, could, he would squash us like a, a gnat at any moment, and he would be completely justified in doing it. Yet he is patient. But his patience has a limit. And that limit for the people of Israel occurred in 722 B.C. When God allowed the nation of Assyria, the nation that, that Israel actually thought was going to protect them, allowed the nation of Assyria to conquer them and put them in, in exile. And from that point on, from 722 B.C., except for a brief period of time, maybe a decade or so in the second century B.C., until 1948, some 2,700 years, Israel wouldn't exist as a nation. Think about that. And just as God was calling Israel to revival, I believe God is also calling us, individually and collectively as a church family, to revival. You see, God's purpose is not to simply fill this building with warm bodies, but rather to fill this building with burning hearts. Hearts that, that long for his word, hearts that, that love and serve people, hearts that intentionally and graciously engage those who've yet to know him, hearts that are unwilling to turn a blind eye to injustice, hearts that, that overflow with, with mercy, that actually really care about people, hearts that seek unity rather than division and truth rather than some kind of political correctness, hearts that overflow from joy that come only from living fully for him. And I've seen him do this over and over again in my life over these last few months. Over the last several years in particular, I have battled on and off with spiritual dryness. Uh, there have been times that, that my prayer life and my devotional life have struggled there have been times that I have doubted my calling as a pastor. There have been times where I wake up in the morning and I wonder, is God still going to use me? And while my faith in Jesus never wavered, certainly my joy did. And then seemingly, out of nowhere, God spoke into my heart and he told me, the joy that I desired would not come from getting to fly airplanes more often. It wouldn't come from working less hours or having everything in order at Living Water. It wouldn't come from uh, remedying all the difficulties of my life. But rather, my joy would come from fully 
returning to him. You see, it was God who initiated revival in my life. It wasn't me. But I still had a role to play, and that's the second component of revival that we see in these next few verses. Verses 2 and 3. Take with your your words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands, and you, the orphan, finds mercy. See, in these these verses, we get a, 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 a picture of how revival works, and it begins with repentance. He says, take with you words and what? Return to the Lord. You see, the the first step is to return to the Lord. It's to stop heading in the wrong direction, to stop pursuing those things that that are opposed to God, and and to not worry about cleaning yourself up. Just turn around in in all of your messiness, turn away from, from those idols, and turn back to God. You know, one of the most beautiful parts of serving as one of the pastors here at Living Water is when people show up here and they're a mess. Just like when Cindy showed up here. Cindy was a mess. And when folks show up like that, they're not worried about what they look like. They're not worried about what they say. They're not worried about what others are saying about them. They don't worry about how they smell or where they've been or what they've done. They have simply turned away from that which has been destroying them. And they've turned back to God. They didn't take time to clean up. They didn't take time to get their life in order. They just showed up looking for God in the beauty of their messiness. They are the prodigal. They're returning to the Father, fresh from from feeding the swine with with manure on their shoes, crud under their fingernails, torn clothes hanging from their bruised limbs, dirt on their face, and a smell that would make a billy goat vomit, and I took that from Rambo. (laughs) See, God isn't nearly as concerned about where we've been as he is about the fact that we're now heading in the right direction. Now the second step is this. We come and we ask God to take away our iniquity, our sin. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity. Folks, we got to face something here. We can't fix ourselves. The world will tell us we can fix ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. And we know it because we've all tried. Think about uh, the the, the one sin, and we all have one, that is persistent in your life. It's a sin that we struggle to overcome. What yours looks like could be different than what mine looks like. And we try and try to beat it. And, And we do good for a while, but over time, we end up right back in the midst of it. Now, why does that happen? I'll tell you why. Because sheer willpower is not enough to beat persistent sin. 
And so many times we, we, we view God as, as standing over there uh, and with our sin between him and us, and, 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 and this is me, and, and this podium is my sin, and God is way over there, and, and I'm beating away at that sin, and, and God is far away, and he's just looking, and he's just like, oh, I cannot believe Mike is doing this again. When will he learn? I am so incredibly frustrated with Mike. He's driving me nuts. When will he ever get it right? Folks, that is the wrong picture of God. If you have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, if you have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's not you, your sin, and God. It is me and God and my sin. And I'm wrestling with it. And he is there wrestling along with me, helping me to, to, uh, to conquer this. Because he's really the one who's ultimately going to conquer the sin. It's not going to be me in my own power. It's Jesus' power. And Jesus' power alone that conquers the sin in our lives. And the Bible testifies to this everywhere. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake... He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took our sin and threw it upon his son. His son became filth so that we could become pure. Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Last time I checked, dead people aren't able to do anything. God made them made alive together with who? With Jesus, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The way that we conquer sin is by admitting we can't conquer it. That we need Jesus to do the conquering in our life. The only way sin gets conquered is if Jesus does it. He calls us to surrender ourselves to him. And then the next step is to accept what is good. He says, take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. See, God is calling us to accept that which he calls good as actually good, to align ourselves with his plans and purposes, not to fight against them. Folks, we live in a world that wants to, or a society that wants to, to be like the world, there are Christians everywhere who, who look at what the Bible teaches. The Bible says one thing. They look at what the world teaches. The world says something else. And, and, and they try to, to take what the world says and make the Bible say that. And they go through all of these, uh, what I don't even know the word, gymnastics, these hoops, these, all of these gyrations trying to twist God's word into saying something that it doesn't say. And God says, you know what, would you just please accept what I say is good? 
Because my word hasn't existed for 3,000 years. It hasn't existed for 2,000 years. My word is eternal. It's never changed. And it's never going to change. Societies come and go. What one society says is right, another society says what is wrong. But God's word is this standard, is a, a truth for us to follow. And he says, accept that which is good. And he calls us to, to have our minds changed so they desire that which God desires. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Surrender yourselves to him is what he's saying. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, as God strips away the sin in our lives, our minds are set free to desire more of him and less of our sin. And then the last step is to begin to actually do the things that we say we're going to do. The last part of verse 3. Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. What does that mean? It means this. I'm going to commit with my actions that which I have committed with my mouth. I'm actually going to do the things that I say I'm going to do. I'm going to follow through in my action. And this was one of the problems with the people of Israel. They said that they loved God, but they never, ever showed it through their actions. They never did. They said, God, I love you, but they never showed that that love actually turned into action. And this is epidemic in American Christianity. People make commitments they don't follow through with. But when true revival takes place in our lives, we begin to actively live out our faith. And, and we're challenged, for this is the love of God in 1 John, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Ultimately, revival brings us a love for God, and a love for God brings us obedience. Uh, obedience will, will never give us a love for God. Obedience always flows from a love from God. So many Christians go through their lives wanting to obey God. And they think, that's what's going to make me right. I'm going to be obedient. And I've been reading this, this really cool book. It's called The Cure. Its subtitle is this. What if, you're, what if God is not who you think he is, and neither are you? And it's an amazing book. It's written by these Christian authors, and it's written like a story. And uh, some of the, some of the uptight people in, in our, our world, they'll read the book and they're like, hey, Mike, there's no scripture in there. Because there's, there's, there's none. And like, how can this be a, a, a Christian story? But littered throughout the book are end notes. Just, you know, the little ones and the little two superscript things. And you go to the end notes, you know what they are? They're all scripture references. And basically, here's the premise of the book. You're on a journey, and you come to a fork in the road, and there's a sign. And one fork says, obey God. And the other fork says, trust God. 
And where do the vast majority of people go? Obey God. What do I got to do to make God happy with me? And you wander down this road, and there, there, are, there are people all along this road who've just kind of, they built houses, set up tents, they got RVs, you know, they're just camped out. And down at the end of this road is a big room that's called the Room of Good Intentions. And you walk into this room, and it's filled with people who have been living their lives with good intentions, wanting to obey God. But you and I know that we can't do that in and of ourselves. But because you want everybody to think you're doing that, you know what they hand out in the room of good intentions? Masks. And everybody puts them on and pretends like everything's all right. But really, what's the mask doing? The mask is suffocating you. The mask is keeping you from knowing yourself and keeping you from knowing others. And so some people just get fed up with the masks and they take them off and they go back and they go back out on the road, but they never go back to the sign. And so they camp out on the road, just lost and miserable and angry with God. But some go back to the sign that says, trust God. And they head down that road and they come to another room, and it's called the the room of grace. And we walk into that room all completely frustrated and stuff like that because of our experiences in the other one, and and, and we begin to tell people about all these horrible things that have happened into our lives, and you know how I've tried to, you know, follow God, and God's not done what I wanted Him to do, and my wife's left me, and my kids hate me, and uh, I don't have enough money, and all this kind of stuff, and the people look at you and go, Is that all you got? Really, that's it? In the room of grace, you find out that that God is the one who makes all of that stuff right. God is the one who fixes all of that stuff. And that there's no masks in the room of grace. People get to, to look just how they are. And they are slowly being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we need. You see, revival brings with it a love for God, and love for God, folks, brings with it obedience to his commands. And when revival takes place in our hearts, listen to what God does. Let me just wrap up quick, and then we'll jump into the Lord's Supper here with these last couple verses. God says this, I will heal, not Mike, not Tim, not Sheila, not Richard, not Dolly, not Ed. God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. And his fragrance like Lebanon. And they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. Not dwell beneath my wrath. Dwell beneath my shadow. And they shall flourish like grain. 
and they shall blossom like the vine, and their fame shall be like that of the wine of Lebanon. That's the work of God. That's the work of revival. And that's the work that I pray that he will continue to do in my life and that he will do in your life and that he will do in the life of this church family. And God gives us a reminder that he's all about that and it's called the Lord's Supper. He gives us a very tangible reminder of where our sins have gone when we receive him as Lord and Savior. He allows us to, to hold into our hand. And I, I love that prayer that Jay prayed, emblems of his sacrifice. He allows us to hold in our hand this, this little piece of unleavened bread that, that, that represents flesh that has been torn from his body for the punishment for our sins. He allows us to, to hold in our hands this, this, this red substance, this liquid that, that represents the, the blood that was spilled from his body because of, of, of our sin. It's not my blood, it's not my flesh, it's not your blood, it's not your flesh. It's Jesus' blood and Jesus' flesh that paid for, for not Jesus' sins, but our sins. What an amazing turn of events. And we hold these elements and we are reminded of the incredible love of God. So if you're here today and you have received Jesus in your life and, you, and you've repented of your sins and, and, and maybe your life is stale right now, allow today to be the first step in revival in your life as you take these elements. If you're here today and, and, and you've yet to, to figure this out, you're like, who's this crazy bald Italian guy up here that's talking to me about Jesus? I really don't know who he is right now. I'm so glad you are here. I pray that you just keep coming back. But if you've not yet taken that step, would you do, please don't, don't let this tray pass you by. It does you absolutely no good. As a matter of fact, the Bible says if that you take these elements, you eat the bread, you drink the wine in an unworthy manner, and the unworthy manner is if you've not received him, that, that you eat and drink condemnation on yourself. Don't, don't do that. It's just not worth it. Allow them to pass you by. Pray, God, if you're really real, if what this lunatic up front is saying is right, show yourself to me. I pray you do that. I believe he'll do that. I know he did that in my life. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and then we're going to pass the elements. If you would uh, just hold them both until, you, uh, until we all have them, we'll stand and we'll take them together. So let me pray. Precious Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this time. Lord, I personally thank you for the good work that you're doing in my life. Uh, I thank you, Heavenly Father, for the, uh, the pain over these last four years. Uh, in general, and Lord, specifically the pain over these last six or seven months. Lord, I needed that. 
And I thank you that you've been gracious to me. And I pray, Heavenly Father, for those who are here in this room who claim the name of Christ. I pray, Heavenly Father, that as they uh, consider these elements, that, that, Lord, you would speak afresh to them. And, Lord, that you might put them on a trajectory of growing closer and closer to you. And, Lord God, for those in this room who have yet to come to faith in you, Father, I thank you for bringing them here. I pray, Lord, that they would have uh, encountered truth that has been shared in love and not condemnation. And I pray that, Lord, that you uh, would be a sweet aroma to them. And, Father, I know that you're irresistible, and I pray that you would uh, show your irresistibility to them so that, Lord, they would say, what must I do to be saved? And they might fall on their knees and repent of their sins and believe in your Son in faith and receive the forgiveness of sin that only comes through the shed blood of Jesus. Lord, do the work that only you can do in us in this place now. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.